you've been following the news lately, you know that the Supreme Court of the United States, one of the most sacred and hallowed institutions throughout the history of this republic, is now under public assault. And not just from radicals uh, in the civilian population, but from people who ought to know better, people actually within the government. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Show podcast. If you've not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can go to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, whichever device you use. And you can either use your native podcast aggregator app and simply search out the Jamie Dury Show and click subscribe. Or you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two app stores and then search out the Jamie Dury Show and subscribe that way. Whichever way you choose to subscribe, you'll be able to leave reviews. You'll be able to make comments. You'll be able to give us a rating. Please give us a nice five-star rating. The more ratings we get, the higher your reviews, uh, the better we'll be able to do for you in terms of offerings um, with this show. But right now, back to the business at hand, the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States is one of three branches of the United States government. We're going to give a little bit of a background lesson, a little civics lesson here for the benefit of those who may not be aware of how this republic is supposed to work. Now, for many, many years, and I guess through the inception of the republic, the Supreme Court, the judicial branch of government, was viewed as the weakest of the three branches. And there's always was great debate uh, as to which of the two remaining branches should be the most uh, powerful, the executive branch or the legislative branch. Personally, since the executive branch is the one that's responsible for discharging the affairs of government day to day, uh, I think you have to give a certain amount of deference to the executive branch. Uh, liberals don't feel that way. They want the executive branch to have all the power in the world when they are in power. When they are out of power, they want the executive branch as hamstrung as possible and let them control everything in Congress. But <clears throat> the judicial branch was never thought of as being that powerful in the beginning because it really didn't have the ability to do very much. It didn't have uh, an enforcement arm. Every decision that they make uh, was adhered to voluntarily as a matter of law. They don't actually go out and enforce the decision. Um, this is the way it's always been. It wasn't until the year 1804, in a landmark case called Marbury versus Madison, where the Supreme Court granted itself the inherent power of judicial review which meant simply that they could review laws in order to determine if they were constitutional. If they conflicted with the Constitution of the United States, they were struck down. If not, they were allowed to remain. And these decisions were respected out of a respect for Republican form of government, meaning a government whereby people elected representatives and we agreed to abide by constitutional norms, and they were self-enforcing. But not always. In 1831, this same Justice John Marshall <clears throat> issued a ruling about the Indian Removal Act, 
At the time, Andrew Jackson, the former general who had fought Indians in the early days of this country, was the president of the United States. And when the act was struck down, removing authority of the government and Georgia, the state of Georgia, where the action was brought over the Indian population, Andrew Jackson replied very curtly, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him go and enforce it. So it came to nothing because the state of Georgia had no interest in enforcing it, the decision, and neither did President Jackson. We live in a different time now, so people adhere to these decisions. But this power of judicial review, which was originally only meant as a passive power to see whether laws that were passed by the states and or the federal government were not in conflict with the United States Constitution, has over the years evolved into the Supreme Court in many cases becoming sort of a super legislature, not simply making rulings about certain laws, but actually writing laws, laws that were never meant to be passed, laws that were never contemplated by the people through their elected representatives, and in many cases, against the will of the people. Now, the court does have the right and a purpose to look out for principle and uphold the rights of the common man, but should not legislate from the bench. And the primary governance of this country as envisioned by the Founding Fathers, was always intended to be at the localist level possible. Meaning, if a local law will do, fine. No state law should be required. If a state law took care of an issue, there should be no need to have a federal law. We see this in modern times. Back in the 90s, Bill Clinton passed a federal drunk driving law. Now, that would be fine if this drunk driving law was only enforceable in areas exclusively under the control of the federal government, but they're enforceable anywhere in all 50 states. Now, is anyone aware of a state in the United States that doesn't have a law against drunk driving? I'm not. It's against the law everywhere. So why this federal law? Well, very simply because these states have become beholden to the federal government for subsidization and funding. So therefore, by making a federal law which set the blood alcohol level at 0.081% instead of 0.1%, any state that didn't change their laws to accord with the federal law lost federal highway funding. Now, if you don't think that's a way of the federal government ruling the locals from a central government, which is exactly what the Founding Fathers didn't want, you're wrong. And that's what brings us to the issue today. The issue of Roe v. Wade, opposed by so many people for such a variety of reasons, but most of the people arguing about the case have no idea what the legal arguments are or the moral questions at hand and why conservatives have disagreed with it. So we hope to unpack some of that today. First and foremost... Before we get to any legal analysis, remember that Roe v. Wade poses a moral question. And that moral question is, does an unborn child ought to stand to be born at the sole discretion of the mother? That's a moral question. Now, the political question is, people who want an abortion want to continue to have the right to have an abortion. And this is one of those cases where a liberal justice 
decided to create a right that is not expressly written in the Constitution. They made abortion an extension of the right to privacy, the right to free speech, you know, the right to be secure in your things and effects. All right, I'll go along with that. But you see, those are rights that are unique to the individual. The right to an abortion involves another entity, the unborn child. And one of the things at the heart of Roe in determining whether to allow this right, and forget for the, for the moment whether or not it should be a federal issue, was when does life begin? Many religious organizations and theologians believe that life begins at conception. Instead, <clears throat> the court adopted sort of a pragmatic approach. And that is, if the life in the woman's womb is not sustainable at the time the abortion is, is to be performed outside the womb, then it's not life. If it is viable outside the womb, then it is life, and you can't abort it, because to abort it would be tantamount to killing another human being. And so they came up with the idea of trimesters. Many of these young women today who are clamoring abortion rights don't even realize that when they talk about trimesters, this was not something that came up from doctors. This is something that grew out of road, uh, Roe. Roe v. Wade. The first trimester, the first three months, it was decided that life was not viable. Now remember, as technology improves and science improves, when something is viable and not viable is subject to change. Definitely by the third trimester, that means month seven, eight, and nine, uh, the child was clearly viable outside the womb. So the court said you couldn't abort something then. The second trimester was always a sort of gray area. Well, one would think that if that's the argument the court made, from a legal argument, that uh, as science improved, this date by which a woman should be allowed to have an abortion should be getting closer and closer to the conception date, not further and further away from it, because the better our technology gets... Uh, the sooner a child is viable outside the womb. We haven't done that. In fact, we've gone in entirely the other direction. We've gone all the way up to this horrific act known as partial birth abortion. Now, that's a euphemism, which makes it sound so benign. So let me explain to you what partial birth abortion is. I had the great miracle and privilege of watching my son born. Now, at the time, because it was my wife's first and only child, because she was a big workout fanatic, she had very, very strong, very, very good stomach muscles. And my son was breech, and he hadn't flipped like the baby usually does before birth, where he goes upside down. He was staying breech. And they tried to flip him with a procedure two weeks before his birth, so they had to wind up doing a C-section. I watched him come into the world. I watched him when he came out. I heard him make his first cry. It was a miracle. Partial birth abortion would have allowed my son to be born 
except for his head. At which point, while his head was still inside the mother's womb, the base of his skull would be opened up. The doctor would take a pair of scissors, surgical scissors, and cut his brain stem, and then suck his brain out with a surgical vacuum. That's partial birth abortion. That's not abortion. That's barbaric murder. I fail to see the difference in the viability of my son after he came out of the womb vis-a-vis what he was two minutes before he came out of the womb. It was the same beautiful baby boy. This is barbarism. So we've gone, whatever your original feeling was on the right of a woman's right to choose, we've gone from what was originally envisioned by Rode to basically abortion on demand right up until the last minute. In fact, in Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam was even talking about, you remember him, the fellow that wore blackface in college, even talking about how if the baby happens to be born and abortion was what the mother wanted, the baby will be born and we'll do everything we can to make it comfortable and then we're going to have a discussion. means they're going to sit down and talk about it before they wipe it out, as the late, great Rush Limbaugh used to say. This is what we've gone to. Now, a substantial number of people feel that abortion, especially taken to this degree, is nothing more than legalized murder, and they want to put a stop to it. Now, whether that's right or wrong is another issue. Everybody has a different moral compass. But from a legal compass, we do have guidance. We do know that people throughout this country prefer different ways of life. There's no question that people who live in New York and California live very different lives than those who live in Montana or Wyoming or Nebraska or Kansas. And that's their right. That's why we have 50 sovereign states. We all follow the Constitution of the United States. That's the basic limitation framework of what's right and wrong in the United States. But within that framework, there's a great deal of latitude that was given to the states because the states are the primary or intended to be the primary form of government of this country. Most of the governance of this country comes by way of the states, or at least it should. So let's get one misconception out of the way right away. If Roe v. Wade is overturned tomorrow, and if that draft opinion turns out to be the actual opinion, where they strike it down, I want every woman within the sound of my voice to know that it does not mean that abortion is against the law in the United States of America. All it means is that abortion is no longer an absolute right guaranteed under the federal constitution of the United States. What is the difference, you say? What it means basically is that the decision will simply be left up to the individual states. Now, you can rest assured, we can rattle them off, 
States like California, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Illinois, Nevada, Colorado, we can go on at Washington State, Oregon, Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, Rhode Island, Delaware, Maryland. It goes on and on. A lot of states are going to have legalized abortion. And we have so much in the way of funding for Planned Parenthood and other advocacy groups that any woman who should find herself living in a state that does not allow abortion but wishes to have one will not be wanting for funds or transportation to take her to a state that does allow abortion. Now let's juxtapose this to the death penalty. There, Because there's a great moral contradiction among people who favor abortion but oppose the death penalty. Just as there is apparently a moral contradiction between people who are pro-life, anti-abortion, because most of them favor the death penalty. So I ask you pro-abortionists, would you like it if the federal government told your state, every state, that you had to have the death penalty? No, I, I dare say you wouldn't like it. Instead, the Supreme Court has said that the death penalty is constitutional. doesn't say you have to have it, but what it means is if a state wants to make a law permitting it, that's their right. If a state wants to make a law opposing it, that's also their right. The same should hold true for abortion. And as far as this fallacious argument that's being put forth by people who ought to know better, politicians, uh, political commentators on a variety of news organizations such as CNN, saying that this now opens the door for a whole host of other personal and privacy rights to be ripped from us by the Supreme Court as they see fit. They couldn't be more wrong, because I doubt anyone has bothered to read this draft opinion. And if you do read it, you will see that there is plain and unambiguous language in that decision that nothing in this decision should be misconstrued as to give an insight or an indication of any other intention or to undermine in any way any other aspect of the right to privacy. It goes out of its way, this decision does, to distinguish abortion abortion from all other privacy rights, the right to marry, the right for gay marriage, etc., and so on, because it involves the life of another person, the unborn child, which distinguishes it from everything else. And I think a reasonable person should understand that at a certain point in a pregnancy, The state has a compelling interest. The state's interest will surpass the interest of the parent. When a child is getting near term at nine months, the state has an obligation, not just an interest, to protect the, the life of that child. And so since the moral compass and cultural mores of the country vary in, in different regions and different states, it only seems fitting that laws governing this act 
should be fashioned to comport with the cultural mores and relevant cultural ethos of the people who live in those respective states. You can impose, you cannot impose a California slash New York morality on people living in Wyoming. Nor would I expect New York and California to have the morality of people in Wyoming imposed upon them. Although, given the sewers both of those states have become, they might do well with a little dose of Wyoming morality. But be that as it may, that's the crux of the argument. How can someone, the moral contradictions, how can someone who opposes the death penalty for people who have already grown up, have made conscious decisions to engage in criminal acts. How can you be for killing an unborn child but be against the death penalty? You're against putting to death people who have committed the most heinous acts, but you have no problem wiping out the most innocent and helpless among us. As a person who always favors the underdog, I just can't see it. And look, I have my own personal feelings about abortion. I don't agree with it. I don't favor it. But I'm not about to impose my will on another person by saying that you can't have it. What I am saying is I do oppose the Supreme Court telling me that we have to have it. Leave it up to the states. There'll be plenty of places for women to go to have an abortion. And it shouldn't be something that occurs so frequently that having it readily available in all 50 states is a, is a principal concern. Now, the pro-lifers, they want to defend the life of the unborn, but they want the death penalty. But I can see less contradiction in that than in the pro-abortionists opposing the death penalty for the reason I just mentioned. Pro-lifers are basically taking a position where they're looking out, standing up for the life of the most innocent and helpless among us, the unborn. But they think that those who commit the most heinous crimes among us should pay the ultimate penalty. What do you do to a person who was already serving a life sentence in prison and murders a correction officer or another inmate? You can't give them life again. How do you punish them? Is it just free? Without the ability to hold something else over their head, you can't even run a prison. You can't protect the lives of the correction officers and the other inmates. We've had such a case. In New York, there was a man by the name of Lemuel Smith. He was implemented in five murders. He was convicted on two. He was convicted of manslaughter. He was serving time. And while incarcerated, he murdered a female correction officer whom he was having sex with. The death penalty was no longer on the books in New York State. So the judge in sentencing him didn't know what he could do to punish this man. So he sentenced him to 10 years solitary confinement. And an appeals court ruled that as cruel and unusual punishment. So it gets to be a little ridiculous after a while. No, I'm very comfortable with my personal position of being pro-life and in favor of the death penalty because there are certain situations where the only appropriate penalty is the death penalty. And that I will not shrink away from.
So before you get your feathers all ruffled, know that abortion is not going away if this case should come to pass. But what does it say about some of the politicians in this country, people like Chuck Schumer, who are running around threatening Supreme Court justices, organizations now threatening Supreme Court justices, someone in the court leaking in an unprecedented fashion the very existence of this draft, exposing these judges to political pressure. The whole purpose of the Supreme Court being a lifetime appointment was to insulate them from public opinion so that they could be an unbiased, impartial guardian of the morality and of the law of the United States of America. The minute you start subjecting these people to political pressure, they lose that, and we lose our safeguarding of our way of life and our Constitution. Now, you can't put political pressure on them. You can't force them out of office. You can make life intolerable for them so they maybe resign. But that was the whole purpose of them giving a lifetime appointment in the first place. Or you can threaten them physically. And that's what's happening right now. All of the conservative justices are now under assault, having their children harassed, having themselves harassed, having their physical well-being threatened, and it's absolutely wrong. Let's listen to some of what Chuck Schumer has to say. And remember, this is a United States senator talking. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. So says the senior senator from the state of New York. Chuck Schumer is a pathetic individual. He's morally bereft, and he's a hypocrite. He talks about conservatives nominating extreme extremist right-wing judges, or as he calls it, right-wing extremist judges. But he has no problem with his party nominating extremist left-wing judges, except that when they do that, he doesn't call them extremist left-wing judges. He calls them mainstream judges. Now, this is the description he gave to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Does anyone really think Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was never a judge at all prior to being appointed to the Supreme Court and worked for the American Civil Liberties Union, about as leftist as organization as you can get. Does anyone think that would qualify you as being a mainstream judge? Most recently, when Obama was in the final year of his presidency and a vacancy came up for the slot of the late Antonin Scalia, the Republicans successfully prevented uh, President Obama from appointing a replacement. And he chose as his replacement... Merrick Garland. There was another mainstream chap. Merrick Garland is the man who currently happens to be the Attorney General of the United States. Have you seen him speak lately? Anyone think he's mainstream? They have people doxing Supreme Court justices. We have schools that want parents treated as domestic terrorists for complaining about the curriculum being forced down their children's throats. We have them wanting the FBI to investigate them. And yet Merrick Garland thinks the most significant threat 
to the national security of the United States is climate change because it disproportionately affects people of color. How he came to that conclusion, we only know, we only can imagine, but this is all done to take away focus from the true issue. And the issue here is an ever-expanding federal power, whether it be through the federal legislature, whether it be through the executive actions of tyrants who occupy the position, or in the case of the current administration, incompetence who occupy the position and are there as puppets only, while the government is really being run by some shadow of a government whom we do not know, but we can only suspect. The Supreme Court of the United States, acting as a super legislature. It's a breath of fresh air to me to see the Supreme Court returning slowly but surely to some semblance of normalcy. Even if Donald Trump never gets reelected president of the United States, and I hope he does, because we need him now more than ever, he may very well wind up being the most consequential president of my lifetime. Because in his four years, he showed that you can turn around a sagging economy and you can make it grow. And he put four, I'm sorry, he put three justices on the United States Supreme Court. And what was a fragile, marginally conservative majority of 5-4 is now a firm 5-4 conservative majority and in many cases, potentially a 6-3 conservative majority because Roberts, you never know which way he's going. Before, he had a lot of power because he could force people to sort of cater to him because he was the pivotal vote. Now his vote really won't matter in a lot of cases. And so what the liberals are really afraid of is if he were to go or some other justice were to go and that 5-4 majority became a solid 6-3 majority, then the court would be conservative for conceivably 40 years or 30 years, which would delay their plans to socialize the United States of America. And of course, what they'll do is continue doxing uh, the conservative justices. This is just an extension. All of this, this reaction to this decision, which has yet to be rendered, is just an extension of everything we've been talking about in recent shows, how they've been funding these leftist DAs who are not enforcing the law to undermine the law, how they are threatening people, how they are uh, victimizing people, how they're not supporting the police department, how they're uh, putting out for public consumption people's home names and addresses, people they don't agree with, anything they can to intimidate the opposition into inaction. The opposition being anyone who stands up for American sovereignty, anyone who's a conservative. This is just the latest chapter. And so they forced Stephen Breyer to resign figuring he's getting a little long in the tooth and heaven forbid he lingers on till the end of Sleepy Joe's term and a conservative gets in or a non-Democrat gets in and then he bites the bullet and we get another conservative justice. Now we're 6-3. So let's get this, this communist in there. Katanji, sweet Katanji, Jackson Brown or Brown Jackson, I forget what her name is. A uh, woman who can't even define what a woman is. That's pretty interesting. You want to protect... The right of a woman to choose this leftist judge and her ilk, but they can't define what a woman is. How can you defend and try and protect the right of something to choose something 
when you can't even define what the first something is in the first place, even though you yourself are one of those somethings. That's pretty rich. I'll leave you to ponder that. That's the incongruity of the Democratic Party in all its malevolence. For The Jamie Dury Show, I'm Jamie Dury.